This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is sociologist and entrepreneur, Teresa Friesen. I've talked with hundreds of women in sports, and through those conversations, the things that I kept finding are that they want more connection to each other, to build each other up, to share the industry secrets, and to kind of go through all of it together, making it a much better future. Teresa Friesen grew up in a sports-loving family. As she grew older, she realized that the industry chose predominantly to show male sports instead of female. In response, Friesen founded the business SheMate, which betters the sports industry for women through community and publicity. Friesen holds a bachelor's degree from Creighton University and a master's degree from the University of Chicago and worked as a social worker and college professor prior to starting SheMate. Friesen is also mum to a five-year-old daughter who fell in love with gymnastics after seeing one commercial featuring Simone Biles. Teresa Friesen, welcome to Lives. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So I'm captivated by that first part of the bio, which is that you grew up in a sports-loving family. So I, I wanted to ask, what was your childhood like? Yeah. Yeah, we grew up in a sports-loving family. And by that, I mean... My dad grew up playing soccer. He played soccer through college. He continues to play soccer today in the 60s recreationally. Um, so there was always this, you know, this presence of activities and much of which was athletics. So that was participating in sports, but it was also kind of engaging in watching sports as kind of social experiences, especially in the weekends. And that really extended to our broader family as well. So on, you know, weekends, the family would gather, we'd watch some football game or basketball game. I was always in it for the social. I was not so in it for the watching the sports situation. As I grew older, it made me wonder, like, maybe I would have been more captivated if it was seeing women on screen or maybe seeing more kind of diverse experiences of what athletics really looked like. But, you know, it was good at the time. It was joyful, kind of community building experiences. Um, my brother and sister are much more athletic than me. So like they were the ones who continued the active participation in sports. Um, I really never was advancing in that space. And so it's, I always kind of laugh that I'm the one in the sports industry now, even though my direct involvement in it has been very minimal my whole life. What else characterized your childhood? So clearly there's this feeling this socializing around, there's this activity around sports. Um, what else was happening in your childhood? Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned sports, that's certainly part of it, but if I look at my whole childhood, that's definitely not the main focus of it. I think it was definitely this, you know, very family-focused upbringing for me in my immediate family, um, in our extended family, but even in our neighborhood. Our neighborhood was... Uh, a lot of young families, a lot of us were going to school together. We would, you know, run around the block together and go to each other's houses, have family dinners at each other's homes. So a real kind of family community kind of experience. We would spend, you know, vacations when my dad would have a vacation from work. Um, we would spend that camping. 
we would drive somewhere and we would camp. My mom would often say that she wished she could freeze time and just continue spending time in those moments. So I think that family focus is really that the biggest way that I would characterize my upbringing. And um, I think I see that most of myself now where, especially as I get older, my biggest focuses are quality time. Um, And I think it's probably paved from that where it was just quality relationship, quality connections. And so I, I just value that so highly now. Your bio gives away that you went into sociology. How did your sense of what you thought you might want to do with your life begin to develop? You know, I shared these pieces of my childhood that were very focused on community, connection, relationships. Um, I also recognized that I started reaching these points, especially in high school, where I started realizing that a lot of other people had much more access to wealth and financial freedom than I had. And so I think in high school was the first time I started thinking like, oh, how can I, how can I build something for myself? How can I grow in this, you know, wealthy space? So I actually went to college intending to be a business major. Or I shouldn't even say intending. I went to college as a business major. Really, my focus was on on money. It was kind of ironic and I kind of started to recognize that I recognized the dissonance in myself and I would try to kind of push it away. So in high school, I was always involved in kind of like service volunteering type activities. We would have uh, these service trips. I would go on them every single year. I always found them to be so meaningful where I got to connect with people in different places throughout the U.S. and get to know people experiencing life in different ways. And those were so meaningful and powerful to me. And yet, when I was thinking about employment, I was thinking about money. Over time, throughout college, that pull felt less compelling. Um, And the real pivotal moment was when I studied abroad. I studied abroad in the Dominican Republic. Uh, The semester was set up in this really interesting way, where our classes, we would have three weeks of classes, and they were in the second largest city. Well, the second largest city essentially had little to no tourism. And so everything was in Spanish. Um, Everything was much more of an immersion into the culture there um, than you could find in like a beach location or a tourist city. And so that immersion was a really powerful experience for me. After those three weeks, we do two weeks in a rural compo. So living with people in different communities. Um, And then we would do three weeks, two weeks, three weeks. That semester essentially solidified my desires to build a career that had more meaning and purpose than I had previously let myself consider. It was also really solidified by one of our visiting professors who is a professor of social work. And she just kept essentially identifying pieces of me that were a fit in the social work world, um, that kind of sociological perspective. And so once I got done with my semester, I, I changed my major and it was certainly more of a, more of a fit for me. You've shared with me that your family faith context was in a Catholic tradition. I don't know the degree to which some of that dissonance was you wrestling with that kind of Catholic moral framework that you were raised within. So my upbringing, you know, from from birth uh, through college, I went to a Catholic college. All those years were immersed in Catholic education. 
um, immersed in, you know, my family, my community, so much of which was Catholic. And so I actually think that is part of me that was contributing to that interest in kind of a, a desire for a purpose-driven career. That was, I think, probably the a, a really strong contributing factor to to where I decided to kind of switch into something different. Um, I haven't been practicing Catholic or a religion for years. And so even as you mentioned that, um, I find myself like recognizing those pieces of me, my childhood, my foundational upbringing um, of how, how much that does contribute, um, even though I'm not participating in the space or um, my particular beliefs are not directly aligned there. But yet there are those pieces of, of me that were, uh, you know, developed in that space. So I'm sure they continue to influence. So you moved into the field academically of sociology. I don't want to assume that I actually understand what that field means. Mm-hmm. Could, could you share what sociology <laughs> is? Yeah. So first it would be a study of society. <laughs> so to back up a little bit. So I went into social work as an undergrad major. And so I worked in social work for years. Um, and then I went and got my master's in, in social work and in, in cognitive behavioral therapy as my specialty. And so um, I was definitely in like that therapeutic realm. Um, and then the last several years I was teaching as a college professor of human services and sociology. I was essentially taking, you know, all those pieces that were kind of on a mi- micro scale of access to wellness, barriers to wellness, um, for individuals and families and communities. And then in the sociology part, recognizing systemic inequities, who is better able to kind of directly participate in society, who is experiencing greater barriers, what are some best practices or research that indicates potential for change. But we often in sociology think about it through different lenses. So recognizing that some of our our lenses are about understanding the way that things work. And that's that. Another is recognizing how things are and how they could change. I try to utilize both of those frameworks, but I often definitely gravitate more to the possibilities for change. What was the nature of the social work that you did and what kinds of issues were you working on with clients? Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to Chicago. I did grad school. And there I specialized in school social work. So I was working in public schools and high schools. So working a lot in direct involvement with high school students, um, typically ones who are experiencing um, some sort of barrier or multiple barriers to their educational goals, um, pathways. And so things like teen pregnancy, struggling with attendance or access to transportation for attendance violence in communities, interactions with, you know, poverty and what impacts that had on people's lives. And then after that, I started working as a social worker at a hospital. And so I was working in inpatient mental health and dialysis because both of those departments require a master's level of social worker. There was a school that was hiring and that was what I had specialized in school social work. So I actually started working in a school. Um, so there I was working again with kids who were involved in juvenile court and uh, families who, you know, had barriers to attendance or youth who had barriers to attendance and simultaneously was able to do kind of 
uh, consulting for the hospital in those departments. Literally at the same time, uh, a two-year community college uh, started this human services program. So I started teaching adjuncts. So those were happening all three at the same time. Uh, That was a lot. I wouldn't recommend it, but it was fine at that chapter of my life. Um, And then one year after doing adjuncts, professor work at the community college, I got a full-time faculty role. So that was where I uh, went all in on teaching and I have been doing that since 2016. So there's a lot of work and it's really challenging. I would imagine that two things possibly were true at the same time. The work was extremely fulfilling and simultaneously incredibly challenging to your own sense of well-being and capacity to be well. And I'm wondering if you look back on that time and recognize how hard that was on you while also being rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think I have to recognize that um, pouring myself into work meant less space in my personal life. And so my mom died of cancer when I was 21. And so at those stages of my life, um, I recognized that I, I was young. I didn't know how to grieve. I had never experienced such a loss. And because that was so, um, overbearing for me, um, it felt like if I pour more into work, I don't have to pour as much into anything else. And it was like this good, this quote unquote good way for me to get stuck in things or get um, overly, you know, scheduled in ways that then I wouldn't have to do other things. Um, So I think it's, that's part of it. And I think I have to be honest with recognizing that in myself. I don't know that I would have said it at that time, but I can recognize that now looking back that um, that felt like a good way for me to essentially overextend myself. I also recognize that, yes, you know, that work is is important and I believe strongly in it. Um, It definitely involves purpose um, and kind of a mission driven work. But um, it I wasn't living a balanced life at that point and certainly not at my greatest level of wellness. No, I'm sorry about the loss of your mother, especially at an age that sounds for you young. But also it suggests to me, therefore, that your mother was probably quite young too. I don't know if this was incredibly sudden and unexpected or if there had been a period of time for you and your family to be, I don't know, adapting to what turns out to be the inevitable loss of her. Yeah. Yeah. So my mom was diagnosed with cancer on my 21st birthday and she died seven months later. Um, I re- I'll never forget sitting there with a doctor who told us that, you know, she was diagnosed and that from his lens, speaking optimistically, maybe she will live 10 years. And I found myself just overcome with sadness and anger going 10 years. That's not enough. She can't die in 10 years. That's horrible. She died seven months later, and I would just have given anything for 10 years. So it was, you know, in the world of cancer, relatively fast. 
I am wondering how you did manage to work through your grief and if your academic background, knowing that sociology isn't necessarily um, a personal therapeutic academic field, but I don't know if your academic knowledge and maybe your colleagues offered some respite or insight that was helpful to you. Yeah. So being 21, going through grief, I really didn't know. I didn't know how. I didn't know what to do. Um, I even remember the day my mom died and I was with my friend. She was driving me away from the hospital and her mom had actually died of cancer about a year prior. I just kept saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? And I think that was probably some foreshadowing for like quite a while um, because I, I guess, yeah, I would categorize it as just pushing away, avoiding. And it was out of functionality. Like when grief would pop up for me, it felt all consuming. It felt like it was taking over and it would be, it would last. And so I found myself going, well, I can't, I don't have, how do I, I can't just be grieving. I have to be able to function. Um, Again, this is thinking back retrospectively, like recognizing that time of my life. Um, And so I just got into this, I would say almost a rabbit hole of like functioning. Um, And it felt like, especially at the time, like throwing myself into work felt okay. Like that's, that's not so bad. You know, it's work that I like. I think it's good stuff. I like where I'm working. Um, so I can do that over the years, both in the immediate and over the years. Um, I met some people who immediately come to mind who really could see through that, I guess, and would be the ones who would say, you know, but really, how are you? Or say, I've been thinking about your mom or say, you know, I see you pushing here, but let's pause and let's talk about what you're really feeling. Um, I basically never got like an out to like float through with them. And that was hard, but also really good. And I'm really grateful for people who have this capacity for sitting in difficulty and being present in that. It was very, very helpful for me. For you and your journey with grief, nonetheless, you talked about you had to function. And so you talked about that part of your life where you became a full-time faculty member teaching. Did that feel like a, a, just, just a positive progression in your practical life as a way to keep moving forward as a human being, keep functioning and to the extent you could, enjoying life? being productive, serving a purpose, while at the same time managing to keep traveling with the grief. Yeah, yep, absolutely. At that point, I was definitely in a, I would say a better space where I had greater capacity to recognize my grief, to feel my grief, to feel my mom's presence and absence in my life. But even when I started there to when I finished there, I still recognized the, I'm going to call it progression, the progression that happened in my grieving and my healing. Um, it was 
hands down the best job I ever had, mostly because of the people. It was really, really good people. And I think it created this this uh, space for me to not only feel what I was feeling, but to be connected with other people who were really great at talking through their own experiences. And it, it felt much more kind of reciprocal, being honest about personal challenges or our, you know, ability to, to discuss, you know, big worldly kind of content and our involvement with it or our reactions to it. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see that as a kind of continued forward progression there. You now are running SheMate, but before we get to that, then you were a full-time professor teaching. And I'm just curious, what was that experience like? So when I was an undergrad student, when I was a grad student, I hated speaking in class. Hated it. Oh, it was so uncomfortable. Like the physiological response in my body, if I had to do that, was a lot. I was interested in teaching, um, but I, that was not like my career plan. I didn't really see that for myself. I didn't even think about that for myself. Um, but I was living in a small rural community in Iowa. And so finding out that this was a possibility felt very, uh, it was like in my proximity, I guess. So it was something that I decided to consider. I was shocked and amazed by how much I loved it. I loved it. Like I mentioned, the people there were so great. The colleagues, the students, so great. So I guess I just loved the opportunity for real, authentic, raw conversation, challenging conversation, um, questions that would make us kind of go there into topics that maybe felt challenging at times or brought differences of opinion into a space. I really appreciated that opportunity. Um, I always joked that if I could just transplant that community and those people with me wherever I move and I would never, ever leave. It strikes me that you are someone who somehow has the capacity to be deeply and vulnerably self-aware and introspective and vulnerable, while at the same time creating a space for others around you, these little communities to have similar kind of engagement with themselves and each other. What were some of the subjects that you wrestled with that were challenging in that way? Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that kind of takeaway from you. I think that is one of the things that I hoped to, to create there. Um, we definitely would, you know, dive into the isms. So regarding, you know, sexism, racism, recognizing, I guess, in both human service classes and sociology classes, and they would present a little bit differently, right? So in human services classes, recognizing, okay, we take these classes to eventually connect with people in in their lives, in people's lives. And so we have to first be incredibly introspective because otherwise our biases emerge in ways that are harmful. So the introspection piece was crucial to human services classes. In sociology classes, we really focused on, again, these different lenses. So how do you first see, you know, an experience or a situation in our society? What is your immediate reaction? What are some other you know, perspectives, differing perspectives? 
and what is it like to kind of think through a different lens. So a lot of times those would be more kind of broad overview and thinking about what potential changes could happen that would potentially change some of the inequities that we see in our society. How did you manage this class in during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, those that immediate transition into virtual, yeah, it was definitely difficult. And, you know, in those early days of COVID, we didn't know what would happen. We didn't know how long we would be in that transition phase. My immediate focus was on recognizing that all of us are in this very unknown space and that, yes, my students are participating in these classes and need to meet the requirements of these classes, but they're also human beings and they're also going through a very tumultuous, uncertain time. And so we got to be creative and flexible and it's going to be person first all the way. I would probably guess with some confidence that the content was not as high and the interactions were probably not as strong. Also, we're all navigating a new space and we did what we could do. Um, There were a lot of debates between college professors, teachers across the country about how much you require of your students, how like which pieces are rigid and which pieces are flexible. One, for example, was do students have to have their cameras on or can they turn them off? (laughs) Those were really big, like heated debates. Um, Questions of like, well, what if they're not actually there? And it's like, you know what? If you don't want to turn your camera on, don't turn your camera on because I don't know what your living space is. I don't know the reality of your situation, but I sure know lots of people are struggling right now. And who am I to impart that sort of requirement onto your life? So good, bad, or otherwise, we all just had a lot to figure out. Yeah, it was probably not, it was certainly not the same. You just can't compare it in the same way. How did you navigate the pandemic for yourself? So at the pandemic, I had two little ones, a one-year-old and a two-year-old. Well, no, she had just turned three, actually. And so I immediately went from, uh, you know, working and daycare to teaching remotely and no daycare. So the pandemic started when we were going into spring break. And so we already had this week. Well, they extended it to two weeks. And I thought, oh, this is great. <laughs> Two-week break of laughable at this point. Um, at first, I just started going, okay, like, it's just me, my little ones at home. And I actually loved it. Of course, the fear and the challenges of the pandemic, of course, were present. But in terms of, like, our own little bubble, it was so lovely. And I found that I was experiencing my children in ways that was really different from what I was used to. Like, if I'm being honest, I found myself going like, hey, what do they do all day? How do they have fun? How do they chill? What do they like to eat? Like, what does their life look like at daycare? And what do we do at home every single day, all day? I just let myself like immerse into it, especially in those beginning days when I wasn't teaching because we were on that break. Um, And it was really lovely. When starting back to work with teaching again and doing it remotely and two little ones, that was hard. It was really, really 
hard. You know, as we were talking about, like, obviously I took myself very seriously as in my career. And so I often would over-involve myself in career. Becoming a parent, I had to really navigate that identity part of myself. Like, how do I immerse myself into my career? How do I take myself seriously or like continue to live out my, you know, values in the working world in the same way when I am now navigating like raising people? That was a hard transition to make. And so by the time like the pandemic hit, I give myself much more space to like navigate those. And I guess I let myself be more confident and okay with not taking some of my work sides as seriously or all encompassing better boundaries and better wellness for myself. But yeah, once we were teaching, oh, it was hard. It was so hard. Like I have this picture of my kids standing on the back of a couch looking out the window. I'm sitting on the couch on my computer and it's just like a glimpse into the reality of what that was. Um, Once we started talking about how that fall semester we would continue to be remote, that was when I felt really overwhelmed. Like, okay, I did this for a stretch, but now I have to keep going and no daycare. Like, how do I do this? So yeah, it was just, it's hard. It's just hard. Part of the impetus towards you coming to terms with the fact that a move from full-time teaching to being an entrepreneur with all the risk and excitement that comes with that was the personal tragedy that you experienced. Yeah. Um, you know, so I mentioned I loved my job for the job itself, but also for the people. I probably would have, like I said, been there forever um, or brought them with me wherever I was going. But I always had this interest and this drive to creation, to innovation. And so I had always had this like inkling and focus on like, what what could I create? What would that look like? And I, I think a lot of that is probably from my mom when we were growing up, she'd always be like, oh, I want to invent that or I'm going to invent that. Or if there was some sort of problem, she'd be like, oh, this is the solution. I should invent it. And so over the years, both in social work and recognizing like barriers to wellness and then in sociology, recognizing, you know, systemic inequities, I kept finding myself going, OK, how do we increase access to wellness through tech? So how do we take these things that are happening on a micro level and expand that through tech advances in some capacity, generally speaking? And so that inkling was there. It just got stronger over the years, especially, I would say, like kind of a pivotal moment was um, when George Floyd died and there was so much more focus on how we cannot just talk about it. We can't just talk. And so I found myself going, my gosh, I'm in these classrooms talking. Like, where's the action? What am I doing? And so that motivation became higher. Um, And then, yeah, I experienced just such massive tragedy where uh, my Levi was two and a half at this point, still in the pandemic. 
and he just did not wake up one day. He just died in the night. It was so, so shocking. Like there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. This healthy, energetic, strong kid. There had never been anything wrong. And then he just died. And my entire life shattered. Uh, all the things that I kind of thought were true and stable and how you live your life were no longer applicable to my life. And so that was in the very immediate. Um, we were living about two hours from Omaha and family was all mostly in Omaha. And so in kind of the immediate, we came back to Omaha. And so that was right and that was necessary. We needed to be kind of consumed by family and friends. Um, and so in those immediate days, uh, that was just not even a thought. It was just what we did and what we needed to do. And over time, we kept staying. We kept staying. And so it got to a point of recognizing, like, okay, this is where we need to be, um, at least for this stage. This is where we need to be. And so um, we officially started thinking about moving to Omaha and then making that transition. And so as I was doing it, I found myself going, well, I'm super thankful that my job is remote and I can continue teaching um, and I don't have to make a change there. But as time went on, I found myself going, well, my job won't be remote forever. I'm going to have to go back to the classroom and really, can I go back? I found myself going like all those conversations that I was having with my students. I no longer have the capacity. I found myself avoiding conversation. And there's no way, there's just no way I was providing students with the quality I wanted or expected of myself. And so I started thinking like, okay, what do I do with a career now? Like, where do I go from here? I started applying for all these jobs that I didn't even necessarily want, but that would get me out of anything that would pull on my heartstrings or make me think. And so um, <laughs> I found myself going like, what? I'm going to give up a job and people I love for jobs that I don't love. I don't want to do that either. So, I mean, of course, I was already just shattered and traumatized. And then to think about a career move just felt like, you know, how do I even navigate this? So I started going, okay, I've always wanted to start a business. I'm going to explore that. I'm just at least going to explore and look into it. So I just started doing exactly that. What I found is that, you know, all the deterrence of creating my own business of the past no longer felt applicable because my threshold for or my uh, view of what is difficult just so drastically changed. Like the thrill of difficult in business and difficult in startup is not a problematic, bad, hard. I just am going through bad and hard. And so that lost its like negative power over me. Um, in the startup world, a lot of people talk about how like you have to make sure that like everything else is going well. You have all this stuff figured out because this is going to take everything. For me, it's the opposite. I feel like. For me, all that personal stuff was so, 
so painful. And I get this like thrill and eagerness and energy from the startup world that um, I never expected, but I, I sure love. Do you reflect on what we described earlier, which in losing your mother, you dove into work in a way that seemed avoiding and not allowing this passion for entrepreneurship and this really interesting business idea to become the same thing and perhaps take the edge off the fact that it, it is a great business concept. Yeah. I'm definitely in a different place now where I keep saying like, it's so fucked up that I went through such loss that now I know how to go through loss. I just really hate that. Um, but that's a lot of the reality of my situation. So at 21, I had no idea how to grieve. I just had to like muddy my way through it. Well, now, I mean, with Levi, I have never tried to be strong. I'm just like, <laughs> I just let it pour. I just let it pour out of me. Um, and in the immediate days, that was a literal outpouring of my pain. Recognized every single day. Like, my gosh, he, losing him is so horrible. Why would I ever try and push that away? I'd just, he is, I don't know if this is the right word, but like worthy of that pain. I'm not going to act like it doesn't exist. And so um, I'm certainly in a different place now where I let my pain be felt and I process it. And um, I don't try to be strong or push it away. I feel it. I feel it. I also have to really give a lot of credit to my co-founder. So my co-founder, Kristen, she and I have been friends since 2007. We've always like daydreamed of working together. In our friend group, we would like talk about how we should all start a business and all live in, you know, down the street from each other. And great. Well, now <laughs> we got to this point where she made and we're like, hey, actually, we could do this together. And she's just been such a fantastic partner in this. And she and I both for years, and that continues now, have prioritized wellness and balance. And that doesn't go away with what we're building with SheMate. And so I default often to like, okay, Kristen, we got to do this and this and this and this. Or like we are struggling in this area and we got to pour more into that. She never <laughs> lets me like get away with that. Like she always pushes back and she very consistently uh, I'm going to say essentially demands that we continue to uphold that focus on our own wellness. In the startup world, like your co-founder is such a crucial part of the business. And I think because we, we complement each other well, we supplement each other well, we have different skill sets, but we always are very honest about what we need and when we can give more and when we can't. So, I mean, time will tell, I guess, but I think at this point we're doing much better with that balance than I had in the past. Would you talk about SheMate? It's just, I think, about a year old now. And so how you've gone about developing it? Yeah, absolutely. So the initial concept came about when I was at this event in Lincoln, Nebraska. The University of Nebraska was talking about some of the things that they see as challenges in their athletics department. And one of the pieces that they mentioned was that they recognize men and women in sport are not equal. They're not having the same lived experiences. And so that sociological mindset of mine, I left that event, I was super intrigued, and I just started diving in. And so I started both researching the space, 
but then also talking with women in sports. And from both of those, I started finding over and over that one, that's not unique to Nebraska, that's everywhere. And two, that there's a lot of energy in making change in the space. I've talked with hundreds of women in sports and through those conversations, the things that I kept finding are that they want more connection to each other, to build each other up, to share the industry secrets and to kind of go through all of it together, making it a much better future. And so we basically started going, okay, what do we do with that? Like, what's the tangible next step and how we create a business focused on a solution to these problems? And so as a kind of a core fundamental business, we offer virtual group mentoring for women in sport by women in sport. Typically what that looks like is our community of athletes, women who are playing sports at college, pro, Olympic, and Paralympic levels, doing virtual group mentoring for high school students. We've now expanded that to younger than high school. We've also expanded that to college. So now we have women in sport, either working in sports or um, former athletes doing mentorship with college women in sport. So that's our big main focus. Um, We also have some things in the works on how we can do better for increasing positive representation of women on screen and recognizing that the sports industry is this great space where you have much more, you know, variety to demonstrate all the cool ways that you can live as a woman. And so many different types of, you know, lifestyles and what it looks like to be strong, what it looks like to be vulnerable, how to handle pressure, even just appearance, like skin color and hair and style, how they engage with people. There's so much there. And if we can give greater access to that in a central hub, where young people can see the vast, expansive ways that you can live as a woman, um, we see a lot of a lot of power in that. You used the word dissonance earlier as you were describing that tension between wanting to go to college to study business because you wanted to be wealthier and set yourself up financially well in the world for your life, while at the same time having this inkling and this moral framework and this value system that suggested that attending to the betterment of society at large was a much more noble pursuit of your life. So those two things working with and against each other. And so here you are, an entrepreneur, focused on the fact that women are not treated equally with the same kind of respect and dignity, let alone the financial context in the sporting world, and doing so through an entrepreneurial ecosystem, which itself has exactly the same challenges. So how have you experienced being a female entrepreneur and growing your business. One of the pieces that I don't think I really led on to is that from like as long as I can remember, I was always the one like raising my hand in class and challenging the teacher and saying, I don't know about that. Or are you sure that doesn't always apply? Um, I was always, you know, for however long told like, oh, I'm too sensitive. Well, often that was because I was challenging something or I was saying like, I disagree with that. Um, so there's always like this fiery part of me. Um, and what I've found is that in the entrepreneurial world, um, I have this permission to be strong. I found that in the sports industry, there's permission to be strong. You know, women, I think, don't get a real consistent option to just be strong, to be fully themselves. I certainly uh, find a lot of fulfillment in that. 
but it's not without its issues. I mean, the things we were talking about in the classroom when I was teaching about how, you know, women, you know, are experiencing these, you know, disadvantages in, in multiple capacities. Well, then I was experiencing them. Like people were saying things to my face and I was like, oh, this is, this is what this looks like in real life. So I think it's important to note that like only, you know, 2% of venture capital goes to women-owned businesses. That is abysmal. We certainly find that not only do we like this business and a lot of people resonate with it, but like there's a lot of importance in continuing to pursue it. Um, There's also a lot of pressure. You know, it's like we have to succeed. There's no room to not succeed because we don't have enough, you know, leeway where a lot of other businesses can kind of continue to set the precedent of how women are strong and capable. There's not enough. And so if we fail, what does that mean? So a lot of pressure, but a lot of energy. It's a great intellectual challenge. Have you bucked the trend in other ways in, in growing the business? While at the same time, knowing that you're new to this world and are willing to learn and grow within it. Yeah. So first, there's definitely a culture in the entrepreneurial world, the startup world, to, you know, skip lunch, to not get good sleep, to over-caffeinate, to over-consume alcohol or whatever substances. There is this expectation to be, you know, always available, always answering your phone, always responsive to emails. Uh, All that's arbitrary. Essentially, if you are experiencing multiple dimensions of privilege, you can probably do those things. When you're kind of a different demographic, maybe from people who are part of the status quo in the entrepreneurial world, those are not thresholds to guarantee success. There are other ways to progress and be successful. So, yeah, we challenge things that are arbitrary. We don't indulge in things that are just done to uh, continue a culture that is unhelpful. On the other hand, we are super receptive to learning. And we've had to navigate that with some caution because both Kristen and I, we like to learn. We like to collaborate. We like to come together through community. We like to process externally. And so we have had to be really intentional about bringing people into those conversations who value that as well. We pretty quickly find out that some people interpret our questions as being unable or unqualified. And we just don't receive that. Asking questions and learning is what it is all about. We always say that if we bring in our skills, you bring in your skills, each bring in our experiences, we're a lot stronger. But if Kristen and I expect ourselves to wear all the hats and know all the things, we'll never be as qualified. So we just receive when it's helpful, when we're a team, when we can talk through. And we don't when it's condescending and distracting. How do you think about this entrepreneurship endeavor in terms of success? So I think in an immediate, we would love to be more involved in high schools. High school is a tough time and young people are struggling with a lot. The adults in their lives are struggling with caring for them in the best way. They are doing a lot and it's not sufficient at this point. In the longer term, we definitely have some great visions we're working toward. One is that as we continue to essentially solidify this model, virtual group mentoring, 
by women in sport for women in sport. There's certainly an opportunity to expand that into other arenas. Um, so those are our visions. But for right now, we're we're heavily in the sports industry, and it's a really exciting one. I don't think there's ever been a better time of positive, encouraging energy for building women up generally and in sports specifically. An aspect of this show is about exploring people's approach to living with purpose and how life's experiences have shown up and guided their reflections on that. I want to ask you that question as we close, but perhaps to borrow from that last question and this entrepreneurial mindset, what does success in your life look like for you? I've often had an aversion to the word success when it comes to my personal life. And I think it's created from my upbringing where success can often so narrowly be focused around things like like wealth or possessions. Um, and so I guess I definitely resonate more with kind of the purpose-driven side, recognizing I feel my most fulfilled life when I'm honest with myself, when I'm uh, engaging authentically, and when I'm observing my own contentment. I find that probably, probably from my losses, the moments when I find contentment are just so appreciated. And so I think it's probably, you know, continuing into personal wellness, raising my daughter, and I guess just openness to how these next few, you know, steps will unravel um, and what that looks like for me. It's some of the particulars are uncertain and I guess it's just a general hope for ongoing contentment. My guest today has been sociologist, entrepreneur and founder of SheMate, Teresa Friesen. Teresa, thank you for being on the show and uh, sharing a little bit about your life and your hopes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Comfy. I'm like, hey, let's chat. I could chat all day now. <laughs> Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>